Welcome to our second um, Mellow Pod, and today we're going to be exploring some different intersections between infant and child development. We're going to talk a little bit about attachment and think about early relationships, um, and then maybe go on to think about the impact of screens and children. And today I'm really delighted to welcome Robin Balburney, who is an infant mental health specialist and was the consultant child and adolescent psychotherapist in Gloucestershire CAMS. And for many years, beginning with the Sure Start programme, Robin worked with children's centres in the county as clinical lead of Secure Start, providing a community infant mental health service. And when PIP UK was being established, he was initially a trustee and later became clinical director helping to set up and then supporting specialised infant mental health teams across the country for over five years. So welcome, Robin. Thank you very much for, for coming to join us. It's a pleasure. And um, we wanted just to start by asking you about a kind of significant memory from your childhood, maybe one that's in the context of a kind of relationship event. Have you got something that you'd be able I to share? One, I have one particular event that went on to totally alter my life and the life of hundreds of other people. Um, okay. Moving closer to the present, at the end of the last century, I got a Winston Churchill Memorial Trust travel fellowship to look at infant mental health services in the States. And yeah. I suspect the only reason I got the fellowship, which was meant to be on parenting classes, and I began the interview by saying I didn't believe in parenting classes one bit, was because in the course of the interview, I was asked what my association with Sir Winston Churchill was. And I was able to say that in a um, campaign in Cambridgeshire, um, when I was a baby in 1948, um, I got kissed by him and they all roared with laughter. And thus I got the scholarship, which I'm sure was the only reason because I didn't really deserve it. Fantastic. So that's a significant Fantastic. early event. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Oh, thanks for sharing that with us. That's great. Um, well, to get on to, to more serious matters, we know that you've written quite a lot about attachment and attachment theory and early relationships and the impact of some of these relationships throughout the life course. And But we wondered just to start off with, can you just demystify attachment theory for us and, and tell us a little bit about what it is and what it isn't? Um, and why sometimes we get so completely caught up in it and kind of can't see beyond it. That would be lovely to, to hear you share something about that. I think the simplest way to begin with attachment theory and research, because the two shouldn't be separated, is that you can see attachment as giving us the language which we can use in order to think coherently about relationships and the impact of relationships upon relationships. And that's its main purpose. As you suggested, it can be put on a pedestal. And if one is not careful, the elegance of the language and theory can take over the thought processes and thus lead to completely false conclusions. Mm -hmm. um, attachment is not something unique to humans. It's found in all mammals and actually most birds as well. So it's a biologically based process by which sort of the relatively helpless young seek closeness to a, a wiser and stronger adult in times of danger and anxiety. Mm -hmm. The attachment system in all mammals, including humans, is switched on by 
the sense of fear, stress or anxiety. So most behaviour that we see in children is not powered by attachment. And frequently people look at children's behaviour and say, oh, this gives me an idea of the child's attachment status. And that isn't true. We only see attachment behaviour when a child is stressed or anxious. And that's quite important to remember. So it's not unique. In fact, seeing attachment behaviour should be relatively unusual. Yeah, yeah. Attachment so, is, yeah, I was just, just going to ask you. So you're saying... That we, t- that we will see attachment behaviours more when the child is anxious, when the child is fearful. What kind of behaviours do we actually see? What, what does it look like when we're looking well, at Well, there are different patterns of behaviour that are associated with different categories of attachment. Um, but these patterns of behaviour are very broad and one observation alone is not sufficient to really come to a firm conclusion. Attachment can truly only be measured by a laboratory procedure called the strange situation um, procedure. And this is time consuming and very difficult to categorize. And people have to be trained um, by Alan Sroof from Minnesota to actually get uh, validity in this. Though a lot of people do claim that they can use the strange situation to classify attachment. I think a lot of these claims are in fact quite false. Where it is useful is knowing that there are certain patterns uh, and that there are times when we might need to intervene to help the child not fall into one of these particular sort of social and emotional and behavioural grooves. The the patterns of behaviour, we talk about secure attachment, anxious attachment, which has two different categories, and then very insecure attachment, which which is generally called disorganised attachment. Um, secure attachment is the most common. So most children have, 60% of children have secure attachment. 60 to 70% of children have secure attachment. The insecure attachments are known as ambivalent or resistant uh, or avoidant attachment. And then we talk about disorganized or disoriented attachment, which is the worst case scenario, which is frequently, although not invariably, associated with maltreatment. And another mistake with disorganised attachment is that especially social workers assume that if they see the signs, the the, the behavioural indicators of disorganised attachment, it automatically implies that the child has suffered some form of maltreatment. And that is certainly not true. Mm. The signs of disorganised attachment are never a reason to remove a child, although almost invariably they are a very good reason to offer help to a family. Mm. The behaviour indicators are... um, best looked at when the child rejoins or reunites with a main caregiver after a separation and again that is almost counterintuitive we look we look for behavior when the child comes together with a caregiver not when a child separates from a caregiver so a child for instance say an infant that's separated and goes to nursery and screams its head off that tells us nothing about the attachment whether the child is quiet or, or distress tells us nothing. It's the child's behaviour upon the reunion episode that does give us a clue. Really so the, the secure child may show distress, but is rapidly comforted and returns to sort of everyday managing their own behaviour. The insecure, anxious, avoidant child tends not to show any great emotional display at all because they've come from a low emotional family 
if you like, the traditional English stiff upper lip family where emotions um, may be felt, but they're certainly not expressed and never discussed. Mm -hmm. So that they've learned to clamp down on displays of emotion, although they still feel anxiety, they don't show it. And the other anxious attachment, which is the ambivalent or um, resistant attachment, they show a very mixed reunion behavior and are often extremely hard to comfort. So they continue to broadcast signs of attachment need well beyond the time when we would expect them to be calmed. And they've come from a family where they've had inconsistent caregiving, where the parents have not always responded to the child's emotional needs and signals in a sort of regular, predictable way. So the child has learned to try and control the attachment reactions by sort of over-broadcasting distress. So you can think about those three in terms of emotional regulation. The secure child has more or less internalized, decent emotional regulation from the parent. So if we're looking for signs of secure child, these are children, it's best to just think overall, how is this child's sort of affect regulation, is it more or less okay? The avoidant child um, has learned to clamp down on signs of emotional display. So we look we look for something that's missing here. Is this child not showing distress where we would expect it? Are they not approaching a caregiver for comfort? Um, are they clamping down on themselves? Um, and interesting, the avoidant child tends to be a bit unpopular at school because they can be a bit of a loner in, in, in nursery school and uh, primary school. And the ambivalent child can also be a bit unpopular because their, their self-regulation is very low. So they're always displaying need and not able to control it for themselves. So that those are the most common forms of attachment behavior. If we move on to the disorganized attachment, which I must stress again, you know, may coincide with maltreatment, 80% of maltreated children show disorganized attachment, but that still implies that 20% of children who are maltreated do not show disorganized attachment. And there are many other reasons for a child to show the behavior associated with disorganized attachment, such as a parent who's temporarily distracted or um, is suffering about a mental illness, um, uh, particular stresses in the home, um, nothing to do with a sort of psychopathology in any, any of the family, just family events. And in fact, funnily enough, it's been shown that if you test children in the strange situation procedure uh, with a too short an interval between, uh, less than about four or five months between, even secure children will then show the signs of disorganized attachment. So you have to be very careful about jumping to conclusions about disorganized attachment. It's useful as a pattern of behavior that we might need to look out for and intervene. But otherwise, it only tells us that this is a child who at that moment has a great inability uh, to control their displays of emotion. So these children can get very distressed and they can get very aggressive because what they gradually learn to do is to use um, their uh, emotional expressions, especially aggression, in order to control the situation because what they're trying to do is make the next moment predictable. And the way they've learned to do that is to become controlling. Um, children are always looking for predictability, same as grown-ups. Our brain exists to predict the next future. We have these, what Bowlby called, internal working models, which tell us what to expect within relationships and thus enable us to um, get on with people without having to think out each new situation in advance. 
Well, the child with disorganized attachment is anticipating fear and possibly rejection. Uh, maternal withdrawal, for instance, is the strongest indicator of disorganized attachment in adolescence. So they're continually trying to control the situation and make the next moment predictable. Um, and they do this by, by sometimes becoming a, a sort of miniature caregiver. So they're controlling the parent and taking note of what the parent does in the next moment or just getting aggressive. I, um, a good clinical example would be a child I worked with as a child psychotherapist who definitely had disorganized attachment. I'm not going to give names, so I don't feel I'm breaking confidentiality. And he came from a background of severe domestic violence. And domestic violence invariably leads to disorganized attachment because um, witnessing violence is far more harmful to a child than actually being on the receiving end of it, bar brain injury. And in the first session we had, out of the blue, he suddenly shouted at his mother, have you taken your pills today? Where are your pills, mum? You need to take your pills. And just the sort of situation there had led to um, him really needing to make sure his mother was under his control. He'd become a sort of compulsive miniature caregiver. And those are the sorts of behaviours, although there are many others, that one looks out for as correlates of disorganised attachment. Thank you. That's really helpful. And I wondered if you could say a little bit more. You were starting to talk about emotion regulation and different aggressive behaviour, different other styles that, that come out for children. But just, just a little bit about kind of, you know, emotions as a product of earlier attachment relationships. Right. And I, I suppose I was thinking about um, how future stressors might you know, come out in, in terms of people's kind of emotion, emotional regulation as a result of their kind of early attachment relationships or style or, yeah. Well, that, that moves us into the field of, of resilience. Um, yeah. Basically, secure attachment is one of the biggest, not the only one, but one of the biggest um, contributing factors towards being resilient, which means that when you meet future stressors, you have a backup of interior resources to enable you to deal with it. I mean, research shows in adults that those adults who get post-traumatic stress disorder tend to have started from a position of quite insecure attachment, whereas the same trauma experienced by people who came from a background of secure attachment tends not to lead to PTSD. Mm -hmm. So emotional regulation um, and attachment go, go hand in glove. They're almost the same thing from a slightly different angle. So as I said, we look for a child's capacity for self-control in general situations in order to give us an idea of where they're starting from in terms of attachment relationships. When a, when a child is a tiddler, infancy, in the pre-verbal stage, so of course that means we cannot remember what's happened to us in the pre-verbal stage. It's not just unconscious because it's been repressed. It's unconscious because it's never gone into... Um, um, explicit memory, it's gone into procedural memory. The child internalizes from the parent, the parent's way of um, affect regulation. Uh, so the secure parent, for instance, is sensitive and appropriately responsive to the child's signals of distress, but not necessarily of distress. It can be of other things could be just boredom and, and, and responds in a way to bring the child back to a sort of um, very broad bracketed level. Um, and parents do that completely automatically. It's 
what Winnicott called good enough parenting. And for most parents, it's it's a sort of automatic. The parents who um, produce children who may show the signs of avoidant attachment, which is the ones who don't show um, great displays of emotion and find that really hard to deal with, they tend to downregulate the child excessively. Uh, we don't do that in that family. We don't talk about this. In, 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 in most families, apart from secure families, emotions tend not to be discussed, but they may well be reacted to. And for a child to learn an emotion, learn to name an emotion, and thus be able to cognitively um, work with it, because we have to be able to think about our emotions in order to control them, he, has, he or she has to have prime caregivers who have the capacity to more or less accurately name what the child is feeling. Mm. It's very easy to say to a child, this is a book, and the child learns book, turn the pages. It's much harder to to get it right with a child and say, you're feeling happy, you're feeling sad, you're feeling bored, um, you're feeling amused, you're feeling browned off with your parents. To name those feelings appropriately needs uh, and accurately needs quite sensitive pairing, parenting. But again, most parents do it without considering it. But the avoidant person doesn't do that. And emotions tend not to be named. Um, they have what's called um, adult dismissing attachment. The child that's developing um, ambivalent or resistant attachment, two terms for the same um, behavioural pattern, their parents may have overreacted to emotions. Um, they may have um, used the child as a comfort object rather than seeing the child as an individual in their own right. They may have responded intermittently rather than consistently. So sometimes the child gets a response and sometimes the child doesn't. Um, there's a whole pattern. And these, as adults, these people tend to be quite entangled in relationships um, and, and find it hard to pull clear. The, the, the disorganized attachment, really, they just come from a, a background where the emotional atmosphere within the house is just suffused with dread of what might happen next and a constant fear of rejection with the child being put into the irresolvable paradox of fear which switches on the attachment system which says get close to your caregiver but fear at the same time of the caregiver who is the source of danger so the child is in an approach in an approach avoidance dilemma which is insoluble and it's that insoluble dilemma which actually scrambles the mind as well as scrambles behavior patterns I think I've rather lost track of the original question. <laughs> no, that's helpful. We were, we were thinking about emotion regulation. We were also talking a little bit about resilience. Um, I wonder if there's other things, you know, in in in, in thinking about the children, the families yeah. that you've worked with, other resilience factors that you think are important. Um, the, main, the main resilience is an interesting concept because there's two branches of research. There's one following children forward, longitudinal studies, mostly done under the attachment aegis. And there's also retrospective studies with, you know, within adult counseling and psychotherapy. And the two converge on, I'm not really an expert in this, but there are three main points, I think, um, where children have done much better than one would expect from a superficial examination of their traumatic backgrounds. Because children can come from a traumatic background and actually do okay. 
Mm. Um, uh, a traumatic family is not an inevitable sentence of doom, as some people assume. Um, it doesn't scramble the mind neurologically or psychologically as much as some people sort of seem to have got hold of. Some children are inherently more resilient. The three, the three factors, as far as I can remember them, and I know there are others, uh, actually four, I suppose, just thought of another one. The first one is a good attachment relationship, a good relationship with somebody which gives you an internal model that relationships can be helpful and can be a source of future strength. Mm-hmm. Now, that may, if it, if the child can't find it within the immediate family, some children find that good relationship with a nursery nurse, with a kindergarten teacher, with a primary school teacher, uh, with an auntie or an uncle or even a neighbour. So some children get a model of what good enough relationships are um, from other adults. Friend, friend, the, the friends' families are often a good source of it. Going to tea with a friend's family and seeing what normal relationships are. For some children, that gives them an idea that, that what they have at home isn't normal. The next factor is intelligence, um, simple intelligence, which is, you know, genetically based. We can do nothing about that. Mm. Not all intelligence, but but the, the potential for intelligent behavior is genetically based. So good intelligence helps. Mm. Uh, again, it's to do with being able to spot opportunities and think your way out of troubles. Yeah. A, a, an easy temperament. Temperament seems to be inborn although it's not immutable um the work by um kagan shows that temperament can be changed so we don't have to assume that temperament is destiny and finally and perhaps most unfairly i'm sorry about this it's being good looking Mm. Mm. the challenge i know the challenge so resilience factors so that's interesting i mean they're resilience factors that actually i've not particularly picked up on in the literature temperament yes intelligence a little bit but um yeah the good looking i hadn't picked good looking yes it's because people go the extra mile without realizing it mm-hmm. there's been teacher observations you know about and and um that just that can make a difference so being an attractive child i think good looking is probably not fair being an because you can be attractive without being good looking yeah we can sort of move on from attachment now then to be thinking a little bit about and the rise of screens. So you gave a recent online lecture around how babies are hardwired to connect and communicate, especially if this is done in a certain way. And it's not just the growth of language that begins with babies and parents mutually and enjoying just chatting away to each other. And you were talking about nonsense, nonsense, the use of nonsense language and the musicality in language. I wonder if you could sort of share a little bit about that, how nonsense language and musicality oh, and things are important for I've development. I've called nonsense language before, Rachel. <laughs> okay. That must be a sort of Glaswegian term. Okay. Right? The new one to me. I Chatting. Mother Ease. Mother Ease, Mother Ease. Okay, mother ease. yeah, Mother Ease. Yeah. And my talk baby chatting. Yeah. yeah. All, all parents in all cultures talk to their babies in a certain way which has commonalities regardless of the language. And that's really interesting. And it's called motherese. And motherese um, has um, a slightly higher pitch. It has a lilt. It has um, a prosody, a rhythm, um, and a beat that, it, that, that, that shines through the language. So anybody can speak to any baby. 
But after about a year, babies' um, appreciation of speech becomes narrowed down to their to their home speech, what they hear in their home. But to begin with, babies will respond to any language. Um, mm. And mother ease is a, the first step in communication. It's the first experience that the, that the pre-verbal baby has of a dialogue, of a mutually influencing dialogue, with 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 the dreaded serve and return interactions um mm. and it seems quite clear in many ways that babies can understand the gist of, of what um steve mullock calls communicative musicality here so the the tone and the prosody and the speed and the length of the exchange gives the baby an important message on an emotional level, which connects them to the parent. So again, it fits in with attachment. It's part of mm. the give and take and the sensitivity of attachment. Mm. And some parents find it very hard to produce motherese. Um, some usually for no, you know, it could be because of domestic violence in the household and um, the mother not getting a chance to talk to the baby or not being allowed to. I've seen that happen. Mm. Or it could be because the mother. Is suffer or the father, it's usually the mother, is suffering some form of mental illness, which is no fault of theirs, but that in its turn can affect the ability to talk with the child. But again, there's, there's a caveat to that. I've worked with mothers who had postnatal depression, some who could chat to their children and deliberately, um, in their ideas, in their mind, fake it, but the baby can't tell that you're faking it, and other mothers who just didn't have the energy. So we we don't want to generalize here, but 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 this exchange is really important. Um, it introduces all the phonemes too. Eventually, of of the native language, babies at around about um, up to about seven or eight months can recognize the phonemes of most languages. Between about seven or eight months, when the um, neural networks associated with um, receptive language and the sounds of it begin to mature, they fine-tune themselves down to what they're hearing and lose, literally lose, the neural capacity to hear other sounds. Uh, a lady called Patricia Kuhn, K-U-H-N, because you can look this up on YouTube, did an experiment, I think, in New York. She got her Mandarin-speaking students to go and see babies at round about, I think it was seven or eight months, and they went once a week and they read the Mandarin fairy tales and they sang Mandarin lullabies to them. And they did this for a couple of months and then stopped. And there was a control group who were just everyday babies listening to the American version of English. At 13 months, they tested the babies to see what phonemes they were sensitive to. The babies that had only been exposed to America could not hear the sounds of Mandarin. The babies who've been exposed to Mandarin for a couple of months at the peak time of language acquisition could still differentiate. So that's really interesting. And again, mother ease is a way into that. Yeah. And that takes us back to like, you know, the sensitive periods for development in the very, very <laughs> yeah. early years, doesn't it? This critical thousand and one one days which i know you've yeah. kind of been very much involved in in that campaign and that language is quite an extensive period but the first the first part the sensitivity to the actual sounds the sort of lilt um and accents um is quite early on mm. but you you can carry on absorbing language in terms of vocabulary for all your life 
and the, the sensitive period for language acquisition in terms of of the sounds ends at about age three roughly um because the um speech centers of the brain don't really come online till about the second birthday yeah thank you but babies like being blathered too and I, I just wanted to ask you just a little bit because um, obviously there's a lot at the moment about serve and return, um, but also about being sensitive to our baby's cues and um, and picking up on signals. And sometimes I find it a little bit tricky, you know, explaining, yes, there is this serve and return, but sometimes we need, to, you know, it's waiting for the cue, it's waiting to see how baby responds and it's not quite like a tennis match, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's more sensitive than that. And I, I wondered I if you could say a bit, bit more about that. I try and avoid the servant return just because of that. And also because there's, there's something slightly aggressive about servant return. If you've watched Andy Murray play, there's nothing nice about servant return, is there? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. the other person. I just talk about conversations. Yeah. You don't have to make it complicated. And in a conversation, people automatically pause at a certain time and allow somebody else to make a contribution. And that, that's exactly what we sometimes see wrong clinically when we're working with parents and babies, is either they don't initiate a conversation or when they do talk to the baby, it's almost the sound of their own voice rather than allowing the baby space to um, babble back. Um, yeah. But most parents allow the baby and take great joy in it they allow the baby to respond and have a conversation. Yeah. You'll, you'll just have to charge people, and I'll come and give my my talk on this with lots of lots of um, lots of examples and make lots of money for Mello. <laughs> well, thanks. Well, maybe we could just um, go on then to the impact of screens and technology on relationships. And I, I think you know we've all been guilty. I know I've been guilty of being on my phone too much, not paying attention to others around me. Also, we've you know seen people walking down with the baby in the pram and, and the parent on the screen and just, just wondering, you know, baby's been given screens really early, just wondering about your thoughts on that. And are uh, we just being too judgmental? Is it okay? No, no they're all doomed. <laughs> Quite straightforward. No, I mean, a, a parent who's looking at the screen is not paying attention to the baby, end of story. So there's nothing wrong with screens per se. It's when and how often you use them and do you allow your need to look at the screen to override the baby's need to be looked at and communicated. And babies looking at the screen is actually, research shows quite clearly, it is actually bad for them. It actually harms development. The American Academy of Pediatrics says no screen time up to six months. And it says six months to about two, two to three years no more than one hour a day of high quality with the emphasis on high quality screen time. Mm. And high quality screen time is the sort of shows that children watch with their parents and have a conversation with their parent about it, like Sesame Street mm -hmm. or Dora the Explorer, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, children that are glued to a screen are not playing, they're not interacting and glued isn't a isn't a metaphor it's actually factually true and we've seen this countless times because in my um infant mental health team we did home visiting we didn't work in the clinic absolutely yeah. no point in seeing a family in the clinic and you'd frequently go in and there'd be a 
television about three foot wide on with the baby and a bouncer glued to it. And the parents would say he loves watching telly. And I would actually, yeah, we made it a principle to explain babies can't look away from flickering movement. Mm -hmm. They get fixated on it. You can watch this in a baby in a pushchair if you're in a coffee shop or something. They see somebody walk in front of them and their eyes will follow until they can't move anymore. And they can't break the gaze until the movement physically goes out of their their, their area, area of vision. And it's a natural survival response and all humans have it. Um, if you're walking through strange countryside and you see a saccade, a flicker in the corner of your eye, you'll automatically look at it. But we have the cognitive control to break gaze. Babies haven't developed the circuit for breaking gaze. So they're glued to anything flickering and they can't look away. So the poor little buggers are basically being hypnotized. At the same time, they're watching often quite unsuitable programs. And that does go into the baby's head. We are mammalian. We're a visual species. Visual information goes in, even pre-verbally. Mm. And a lot of what these children are watching normalizes violence. Mm. Um, or normalizes family dysfunction. Um uh, the sort of programs that get left on. So there's no harm in using a television as an electronic babysitter for short periods of time. But if it's permanent, it is harmful for the child. And there is a wide range of research that shows that children who are exposed to more than the recommended amount of television are vulnerable for, it's not inevitable, but are vulnerable for severe language delay, around about tested age five, and the risk of autistic spectrum disorder increases significantly mm -hmm. and the other risk of course is they're, they're little slugs but if you're watching a screen you, you're not doing outdoor activity outdoor activity is positively good for a child indoor activity is a waste of time so these children are lacking because they're glued to a screen they're not doing something that's positive and normal and outdoor activity is normal yeah in looking at a screen is not normal mm -hmm. We can define normal quite easily. It's operating according to design. We were designed to swing about the trees and cling on to our furry mums. We weren't designed to look at screens. Yeah, helpful. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, very, very timely, I think. Uh, I, I suppose I'm thinking really around how, how can we support parents and children and early relationships and, you know, very much coming out of UNICEF, coming out of Harvard, um, other places at the moment, is, is this idea of an environment of relationships and children need an environment of relationships to grow up in. And we were talking there about going back to evolutionary times and being part of a tribe, being part of a family grouping. And, and I wonder if you could maybe just say something a little bit about that, that the importance of that environment of relationships, which we're starting to suppose come on to well, at the end of that chat. Yeah. You've sort of said it. I mean, we're, we're, de we're designed by nature, if you like, so you can say it's normal to operate, to grow up, um, to find ourselves within a network of relationships. Um, no person can exist in isolation. Um, and it takes a relationship to help somebody who's struggling with a relationship. So we need relationships to stop relationships going wrong, we need relationships in order to offer some sort of repair. It's never total, but to order, offer some sort of repair to those people who have suffered traumatic relationships in their past. And working in the field of early intervention, early relational health, 
Mm. Um, we're frequently both trying to prevent something going wrong in an, in an incipient relationship. Uh, simultaneously, we have to somehow address a relationship that did go wrong and thus altered somebody's back to internal working models of relationships in their childhood um, so that their implicit method of parenting needs to be made conscious and worked with and alternatives need to be offered. But with, if this is not done within the context of a relationship, first of all, it's not going to be safe. And secondly, it's not going to actually change anything. And here you come to the crux of the difference between parenting classes, which are fine for the worried well, and therapeutic groups, which need to be relationship-based in order to have any impact. Um, it takes a relationship to change a relationship and classes aren't relationships. Mm. That's really helpful. I think on, on that note, we'll finish. And thank you very much for being part of this Mellow Pod. 